People of the interwebs, how's it going? Hopefully you're doing great today. My name is Drew. Thanks again for hitting play on the Practice Church podcast. You've done it again, well done, or maybe you've done it for the first time, who knows? But thanks for being with us. We're so thrilled you're along for the journey and along for the ride. And we are right now in a series called From Redemption to Recycling. What we're doing is we're looking at basically everything, anything we can basically anything that's come our way as far as questions and what we feel are really important things in culture and in life and in the church we're just trying to tackle and basically this week is the week of money i know you're just so thrilled to talk for us to be talking about money i know that's just why everybody comes and i know people wake up in the morning on sundays and just hope man you know what i hope my church talks about money today But, uh, listen, nobody's thinking that, but the other side is Jesus talked about it a lot, talked about our treasure a ton, and people have questions around money. So what we did on Sunday, actually, is we got the ball rolling, and this week we're going to have a few additional podcasts to kind of answer some questions and help along the way. So on Sunday, we had some friends kick off the week uh, on money um, by coming and sharing on a panel around financial stewardship. And in particular, these were people, it was so good. These were people that um, are professionals when it comes to finances and financial planners, and uh, this is basically their lives. And so they came and shared some very, very practical things on Sunday around debt, around future planning. Um, Basically what we've done is we're starting with the practical stuff kind of first because we wanted to hear their voices. We have some brilliant minds in our community and we wanted to make sure that they were a part of what, what was happening. And so I really encourage, we really encourage you, everybody to go back and listen to that. We believe it'll be helpful for everybody because we want to steward our stuff well um, so that we can be people that live simply, give generously. And they gave some nuggets that are way, way out of my pay grade. And we need to really listen to people's expertise. And some of these folk have been doing this for a while and we just need to lean in and listen. So I really encourage you to do that. So that got the ball rolling. Now what we're gonna do is we're gonna talk more of the theological side. Normally what we do on a Sunday is talk about the theological side and give some practicals during the week, but I just felt like it was great to start with the panel. And in the past in our church, we've done some work around the theology of money and stuff and stewardship. Uh, and we're just going to cultivate that this this week. And so I hope you can listen in over the next couple of days. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to release a teaching in a second by a guy named Randy Elkhorn. And he's going to share on the treasure principle. Tomorrow, we are going to answer the question, should I tithe? This is a question that comes back all the time. People ask, uh, what is the tithe? Should I do this? Like, I'm not an ancient Israelites, you know, way back in the ancient Near East, do I need to be doing this? Am I under the law to have to do this? We'll talk about that tomorrow. And then on Thursday, we're going to talk specifically just for a couple minutes about simplicity and generosity or generosity and simplicity and how the call into a simple life in the way of Jesus is also the call into a generous life. And we're just going to highlight one church in the New Testament that did this really well, even though they didn't have a lot. And so that's where we're, that's the map for this week. We had the teaching Sunday and this is what we're going to do this week. Now for today, we're going to hear from an amazing guy named Randy Elkhorn. Randy wrote a book a number of years ago called The Treasure Principle, which I think hands down is one of the best books on financial stewardship. It's, it's a small little book, but has been super, super helpful. And this teaching that he's gonna give, I just want, I really encourage you, it's an hour long almost, but here's the thing, we're not sitting all together. You can do this on your jog or your commute or while you're cleaning the dishes or whatever you're doing. I think we can get through this and listen through some of this content. And I think it will be super helpful as he talks about stewardship and money and really the theological side. Uh, Randy's also got a new book. I forget the name of it. I don't have it here with me. Um, It's called Giving is the Good Life. And it just came out. Um, Apparently it has a lot. I haven't read it, but it has many of the same principles as the treasure principle, but, but with some updated stories and different things like that. So without further ado, take some time. Let's listen to Randy and uh, just listen in to some of the things he leads us in. And I think this will be super helpful for us as we really desire to be a community that's simple and lives in the way of Jesus and is really, really a generous people. So check it out. I'm going to do something uh, pretty different here. Uh, I'm going to start by 
reading, and this is the only service I'm doing this in, and it probably won't turn out well, so I won't do it tonight. Uh, but you'll have the distinctive of being the only service here at Solid Rock this uh, weekend where we started by reading four paragraphs by Stephen King. <clears throat> and on the same handout, which by the way is available at uh, the, the book table, on the back it's got quotes from Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, and Angelina Jolie, and Jesus. <laughs> which we really needed Jesus after all those, but the point is that what they are saying is what God has revealed to secular people. What by God's common grace, he has helped people to understand about giving. What even some secular people have discovered and it has changed their lives and infused them with as much joy, I think, as you can get apart from knowing the living God. And of course, ultimately, that's not enough joy, and that's not a lot of joy, but it's some joy because God has built principles into life. And sometimes unbelievers discover principles that Christians have not discovered and are not living by. Maybe you've seen a family that doesn't know Jesus, but they love each other, and it's a great family, and you say, wow, that family, look at what they're experiencing. Well, that's by the grace of God. That's his common grace. He sends the rain and the sun on the good, on the evil, on believers, on unbelievers. But here's what Stephen King said in an article in Family Circle magazine some years ago. And some of you may remember a number of years ago that Stephen King uh, was uh, hit by a van uh, and almost died and went through a excruciating rehabilitation and it really shook him up and woke him up to some things and here's what um, he has to say this is how he begins he has an article called what you pass on he says a couple of years ago I found out what you can't take it with you means I found out while I was lying in a ditch at the side of a country road covered with mud and blood and with the tibia of my right leg poking out the side of my jeans like a branch of a tree taken down in a thunderstorm. I had a MasterCard in my wallet, but when you're lying in a ditch with broken glass in your hair, no one accepts MasterCard. We all know that life is ephemeral, but on that particular day and in the months that followed, I got a painful but extremely valuable look at life's simple backstage truths. We come into this world naked and broke. We may be dressed when we go out, but we're going out just as broke as we came in. Warren Buffett, going to go out broke. Bill Gates, going out broke. Tom Hanks, going out broke. Steve King, broke. Not a crying dime. All the money you earn, all the stocks you buy, all the mutual funds you trade, all of that is mostly smoke and mirrors. It's still going to be a quarter past getting late, whether you tell the time on a Timex or a Rolex. No matter how large your bank account, no matter how many credit cards you have, sooner or later, things will begin to go wrong with the only three things you have that you can really call your own, your body, your spirit, and your mind, your spirit, interesting. So I want you to consider making your life one long gift to others. And why not? All you have is on loan anyway. All that lasts is what you pass on. Now these are words spoken by an unbeliever that are profoundly true in ways beyond what he imagines, but nonetheless are profoundly true. One of the things he says in the rest of the article is very much worth reading. We just don't have time to read it all, but he says, he looks at the world and world need. He says, it's not a pretty picture, but we have the power to help, the power to change. And why should we refuse? Because we're going to take it all with us? Please. So you can't take it with you. It's, it's a great uh, conclusion, a great theme, and it corresponds very much to what Scripture 
says. But we're going to see this. You can't take it with you, but with an added twist that we're going to get to a little bit later in the message. In your bulletin, if you take out this little insert on one side, it has the treasure principle, treasure principle keys. But look on the other side, Ecclesiastes 5, 10 through 15. Everything you see in bold on this page is a statement of scripture from the book of Ecclesiastes written by Solomon. And then every, everything you see that's not in bold, the comments or the paraphrases under that, they're written by me. So what's in bold is inspired, and what's not in bold is not inspired. But I hope, nonetheless, it captures a little bit of what the boldface inspired stuff says. Whoever loves money never has money enough. In other words, the more you have, the more you want. Whoever loves wealth, scripture says, is never satisfied with his income. In other words, the more you have, the less you're satisfied. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. The more you have, the more people, including the government, come after it. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? Oh, they look so good. They look so good. The more you have, the more you realize it doesn't meet your real needs. I love this one. The sleep of a laborer is sweet, but the abundance of the rich man permits him no sleep. The more you have, the more you have to worry about. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner. The more you have, the more you can hurt yourself by holding on to it. Or wealth lost through some misfortune. The more you have, the more you have to lose. And then finally, naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. The more you have, the more you have to leave behind. Why? Because, as Stephen King said, you can't take it with you. And it's so true. Solomon said it. Stephen King said it. Jesus said it. People, secular, Christian, great people, small people, rich people, poor people have all said it. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And here we're going to kind of set up the context for this message. This message is on the subject of giving. You'll notice that your pastors aren't preaching on giving. They call in someone from the outside. Someone who it doesn't matter whether you end up liking them or not. And that's me. That's my job. So, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 through 10 is the greatest, longest passage on giving in all of Scripture. But I want to emphasize where it begins, where it ends, and what's in the middle. Chapter 8, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. He starts with the grace of God. That's what sets the framework for giving. He's going to go on in detail talking about giving. Uh, they're taking a contribution for the needy saints in Jerusalem. And this is about the offering and the collecting of the offering and the setting aside money for the offering and why they should give and how God loves a cheerful giver and all these great things in here. It starts with the grace of God. Jumping ahead to the very end, it ends with the grace of God. Look at chapter 9, verse 14. They long and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. So it starts with the grace of God, ends with the grace of God. And what do you find in the middle? Well, you find the grace of God. You see it in verse 9 of chapter, back in chapter 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become 
rich. And here you have these Christians who gave generously out of unbelievably adverse circumstances. Look back in verse 2. It's talking about the Christians and the churches of Macedonia. He says, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, take a careful look at what he's saying. You've got a severe test of affliction accompanied by an abundance of joy. How does that even fit? Then you've got their extreme poverty, and in combination with the severe affliction and the abundance of joy, it all overflows in a mix and comes out in terms of a wealth of generosity. In other words, they're giving, and you can't stop them from giving. You can't stop them from contributing financially to meet the needs of God's people in Jerusalem. 4, verse 3 says, they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor or the privilege of taking part in the relief of the saints. Whoa, why is it saying they begged for the privilege? Why, why would people beg for the privilege of giving? Well, I think it's because Paul, perhaps, and, and certainly other people would have advised them, you, you shouldn't be you shouldn't be giving. Nobody expects you to give. You're poor. You're, you live in extreme poverty. You're going through a severe affliction of all people. They should be recipients of others' gifts. Surely they shouldn't be giving. But you know, I've learned something over the years going to different parts of the world and spending time with poor people. And that is that poor people consider giving to be one of the greatest privileges. If you've gone on short-term missions, that sort of thing, you know how people will put a meal in front of you and they will sacrifice. They will take the best that they have. Um, they, they might take a, a month's ration of food and put it in front of you because they're giving. They're not doing it begrudgingly. They're doing it. It's part of being created in the image of God and part of being transformed by the gospel of Christ. And that's what we see in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. We see the lightning of God's grace striking. And when lightning strikes, something follows. What always follows lightning? Thunder. The lightning of God's grace is always followed by the thunder of his people's giving. Because when God's grace strikes in your heart, it makes you a giver. First John says, we love God because he first, what? <coughs> Loved us. Likewise, we give. Why? Because he first gave to us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God is a giver. Christ is the ultimate giver. You see that in chapter 8, verse 9, that we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. Where God's grace is, his people's giving always follows. So there's a way of measuring how much grace a group of Christians is actually experiencing. You can see it in how much giving they're doing because you can't help but give when God gets a hold of you by his grace. Grace is the strongest word in the language. There, there's no greater word. Uh, there's no loftier word than grace. And we could go further and give more illustrations, I won't, but of grace and giving and how they're mixed together there in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. I say that leading up to some statements that are going to be difficult. There are some facts, and here are the facts. We live in the most affluent society in human history. American Christians control 70% of the world's wealth that is in the hands of Christians. Now there are way more Christians in Asia, 
Africa, South America, cumulatively, way, way more than in North America. But 70% of the wealth in the hands of Christians is in the hands of Christians in North America. 70%. So of all the wealth God has entrusted to his people in the world to get the gospel to people of every tribe and nation and language, to care for the needy, the hungry, to help the dying, of all that, 70% is in our hands, people of North America. Now, in contrast to that, think in terms of how poor the people of Israel were and what was required of them. Let me say this. Um, let me recommend something to you. It's a, it's a website. It's called globalrichlist.com. Globalrichlist.com. Go to that site and enter the amount of money that you made last year. Or if you're maybe in college or a young adult still living at home with your parents, it isn't, doesn't matter whether you made it, your parents made it because you're living off their wealth. So it's not, you know, you might not have made much money last year, but how much money was made by the breadwinner of a family whose wealth allows you the standard of living you enjoy. So you put that amount in at globalrichlist.com, and then it will tell you what percentile of the world's wealthy you live at. Okay? Well, if you made $50,000 last year, you are in the top 1% of the world's wealthy. The top 1%. You're in the lower part of the 99th percentile. You're in the same percentile with Bill Gates. Yeah, he's in the higher part. You're in the lower part of that 1%. I got that. But that's $50,000 a year. But here's what's really shocking. <clears throat> Suppose you made only $1,500 in a year. And consider that there's a couple of different levels for it, but somewhere in the neighborhood of $20,000 is considered U.S. poverty level. I mean, that, that's, that's a, a very small amount for somebody to make in a year, to the point that people actually even call it poverty level. But now, let's talk about $1,500, not $15,000, $1,500. Suppose you had made $1,500, or the breadwinner of your family, your parents, whoever, had made $1,500 last year. Well, go to globalrichlist.com and put it in, and see what percentile of the world's wealthy you end up at. What do you think? The fifth percentile? The tenth percentile? The fifteenth? Maybe as high as the twentieth? How about this? The truth is, if you made $1,500 last year, you would be in the 76th percentile of the world's wealthy. So people, let's not get confused even for a moment that when scripture talks about rich people, it is talking about us. It is. Some here are more wealthy than others, but all of us, even to be here, are, comparatively speaking, wealthy people. But now let's go back to the children of Israel. Let's go back to the poor Israelite that's a farmer, he's a herdsman, and you know, whatever. And you know what was required of him were three different tithes for mandatory giving. There, were two, there was one tithe that was just required every third year. So what it averages out, these three tithes, is 23% per year. But some of that was for what we would call civil government sort of thing. So let, let's exclude that. Let's just take the tithe they gave, 10% of their income, which they're responsible to give, to the priests and the Levites, their spiritual leaders, which would roughly be equivalent to what a New Testament Christian would give to his local church uh, for his spiritual leaders and the physical things and the facilities and the administrations and all the things that need to be done in churches. So let's just 
make that comparison. What would you expect to have a higher level of giving? God's old covenant people who lived in a poor culture, who had not experienced the redemptive work of Christ, they were looking forward to Messiah, but they hadn't experienced it yet, and who were not indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. What would you expect their level of giving would be compared to the level of giving of people living in the wealthiest culture in human history who have experienced the redemptive work of Christ and who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God? Which would you think would probably be expected to give more? Those Old Testament Israelites or New Testament Christians? I think you'd probably expect it would be Christians. So what's the truth? The truth is that the average American evangelical Christian, born-again Christian, as part of a local church, gives a grand total of 2.6% of his or her income to the church or to any Christian cause. 2.6%. That's almost exactly one quarter of what the poor Israelite was expected to give in one of the tithes to the priests and Levites and to their spiritual care and management. Wow. Remarkable. It, is it because we need to give less today because world need isn't as great as it was back then? No, it's greater than ever because of the population of the planet and the needs, the medical needs, the need to reach the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's another statistic. The younger a churchgoer, the less he or she gives proportionately. I'm not talking about the less total giving. Yeah, that would be obvious because less income, less total giving. But no, I'm talking about proportion. The younger somebody is, the less they give. And I'm not only talking about teenagers, I'm also talking about people in their 20s give less than people, proportionately, than people in their 30s. People in their 30s give less proportionally than people in their 40s. People in their 40s, less than people in their 50s. People in 50s, less than people in their 60s. It goes all the way up the spectrum. Each successive generation is giving less and less and less proportionately, which is it's kind of um, strange in a way because I think the perception is uh, uh, there's a lot of young people and one of the services last night downtown was predominantly young people and there's a lot of young people here as well but one of the things I was saying to them is it, it's kind of is counterintuitive because you, you think that young people today care more about poor people, right? They care more and they talk more, certainly, about needing to care for the poor. Some volunteer their time, and that's certainly a good thing. But in terms of any financial gifts to help people, they give less, on average, than their parents, who we tend to think of as, well, the parents are materialistic and they're not really concerned about the poor, but actually they give more than young people. What's ironic is that Within 50 years, $100 trillion will pass from older to younger people in America. And the money is being passed from a generation of very poor givers to a generation of even worse givers, proportionally. Something is badly wrong. And I think it's especially badly wrong when you think in terms of what does it tell us about our experience of the grace of God in our churches. Because if the lightning of grace was really striking, wouldn't you think the thunder of giving would be greater than it is? Wouldn't you think it would be a lot more than one-fourth of what was required of the poorest Israelite in one of their three tithes? 
what has gone wrong? I think the answer is we are not getting it when it comes to the subject of financial giving. Jesus addressed it repeatedly. Approximately 15% of everything he said had to do with the stewardship, the management, including the giving of financial assets, money and possessions. That's what I, when I wrote my book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity. So I wrote that little book, the treasure principle that John Mark was talking about, that this book on giving. It's not just about giving. Stewardship is about more than giving. Stewardship is about more than money. Stewardship includes our time, our abilities. But you know what? In the Bible, the giving of time is never a substitute for the giving of money, just as the giving of money is not a substitute for the giving of time. We are to be stewards of all God has entrusted to us, and God is the owner of all of it. Let me read you a few things. This year, nine million children younger than five will die needlessly, more than half from hunger-related causes. 25,000 children die every day from things that are preventable. In the course of this one service that we are enjoying together, over 1,500 children will die. As precious as my uh, four grandsons are, and they are precious, I was uh, out with them yesterday morning, and three of the four, aged four, five, and six, are on the same soccer team. And, and how many of you have kids or have seen kids play soccer at that age? Oh, it's so fun. It is so fun. Our four-year-old was kicking the ball, smiling the whole way. He's kicking it. You just can't get the smile off his face. Just having a blast. Those kids are so precious. Nancy and I love them with all of our hearts. And yesterday as I was looking at those kids and I was thinking about those statistics and thinking those are more than statistics, these are children who have names. Now, I don't know their names, and you don't know their names, but they're just as precious as my grandchildren, your grandchildren, your children, your little brothers, sisters, just every bit as precious as they are in the sight of God. And God has entrusted wealth to his people that could save most of their lives. I'm not going to oversimplify the poverty problems of the world. They're not, they can't all just be fixed by, with an infusion of money. But some of them can be fixed where the systems are in place and where it's a matter of just lacking funds for the amount of medicine that is needed, for the amount of food that is needed to be distributed to people. The long-term solu solutions, micro-enterprise, business loans, there's all kinds of things in Africa and other places that are being done that are effective and can make a long-term difference as well as the other things that can short-term save lives. But let me read to you a few verses that I looked up yesterday. These are straight from Scripture. Give generously to the poor and do so without a grudging heart. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your brothers and toward the poor and needy in your land. Proverbs 19, he who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward him for what he has done. Proverbs 22:9: a generous man will himself be blessed, for he shares his food with the poor. Proverbs 28, 27, he who gives to the poor will lack nothing, but he who closes his eyes to the poor receives many curses. So you want many blessings or many curses? I, I'd rather, I think I'd rather have the many blessings. So give to the poor, because if you close your eyes to the poor instead of giving to them, you're going to receive many curses. I want you to share your food with the hungry, God says in Isaiah 58. goes on to say a few verses later, Feed the hungry, help those in trouble. Then your light will shine out from the darkness, and the darkness around you will be as bright as day. In as much as you have done it to the least of these brothers of mine, Jesus said, so you have done it unto me. 
Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. James 2 says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and be fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? And then finally, 1 John 3, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Now let me go back to this question. And by the way, we could also read verses that have to do with the spiritual plight of the world and our need certainly to give generously to God's kingdom in terms of evangelism, uh, Bible translation, reaching people of every tribe and nation and language with the gospel of Jesus Christ. What, you know, there's a lot of exciting ways, things to give to, but it's hard to get more exciting, not only than saving people's lives physically, but reaching them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, going back to the comparison to the poor Israelite, and the tithe required of him, the priest and Levite tithe. Let me say this, this message is really not about tithing. But the reason I mentioned tithing, the reason I mentioned it in my books, is to get our attention and raise the question, do you think God would expect more of us or less of us? Does grace mean, and people talk about, oh, I don't talk about legalistic tithing. That was the law, we're under grace. I believe in grace giving, which for most people means they believe in giving virtually nothing, <laughs> which is a very interesting thing. And I don't know whether that applause was, that, that applause could go either way, but I'm going to take it, assume that it was right. But, you know, but there's a lot of people truly who believe that grace giving means give whatever you feel like. And the problem is most of us never feel like giving. We just don't. Do you know that 40% of people who call themselves born-again Christians give nothing, or virtually nothing, next to nothing at all? And that figure of 2.6%, the average Christian giving away 2.6% of their income, well, I know people who give away, wealthy people who give away 50%, 60%, 70%, 80%, in some cases 90% of their income. And the remarkable thing is, that's what pulls that statistic up to 2.6%. A lot of people are giving significantly less than that. It's just an average. So, I guess the, um, the point is, no, it's not about tithing, but I think it's relevant to raise the issue of tithing because it gives us something to compare to. And you know what? If you are not, if you're like the typical American Christian and you're giving significantly less than 10% of your income, maybe it would make sense to just start there. Not as a ceiling of giving, not as the great pinnacle, just as the floor of giving, just as the training wheels on the bicycle of giving to get yourself up. And you know what? Good for you if you don't need training wheels. Just ride the bike. But if the bike's just lying there and you can't get up on it, and you haven't been up on it, swallow your pride, put the training wheels on, and learn how to ride a bike. And then when you don't need them, take them off. And you know what? If you're giving 15, 20%, 30%, 40%, 50%, whatever, if you're giving of your income, well, You've proven you don't need tithing. You don't, need, you don't have to think about tithing, as long as you're giving more than a tithe. And if you think, oh, no, yeah, but that would be legalism. If I decide I was going to do, I put myself under bondage, under Old Testament. You know what? There are some good ideas that are good ideas, whether they're required by law or not. Wearing a seatbelt was a good idea before it became mandatory by law to wear a seatbelt. And if the seatbelt law was revoked today, tomorrow 
I'd still wear a seatbelt, and I'd advise my grandchildren to wear a seatbelt. And you might say, oh, you're under the law. That's been abolished. You know what? A good idea is a good idea, whether it's under the law or not. So I would just say, don't disregard the entire Old Testament and think, oh, that didn't have any purpose because there was a reason for the first fruits. There was a reason for the easily calculatable nature of that 10%. Just a starting place. And by the way, if you think it would be legalistic to start at 10%, I would tell you this. Great, start at 11%. 12%, whatever. The only thing I wouldn't want to do is stand before the judgment seat of Christ and try to make a case for how I, living in the most wealthy culture in human history, and being indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, having experienced the redemptive work of Christ, would be able to justify giving less than what God required of the poorest Israelite. I just don't think that's going to fly. Ask yourself, how is this going to fly at the judgment seat? See, I, every once in a while I think of something where I've, I've got my rationalization. Well, you know, it's because of this. Then I go, okay, so I'm sitting, talking to Jesus at the judgment seat, giving an account of my life, which scripture says I will do, and every one of us will do who know him. And then I think to myself, what's he going to say? Is he going to buy that? And I'm thinking, no, I don't even buy it now that I think about it. And he, he's not going to buy it. Uh, now, whenever you even mention the subject, of tithing, even though that's not the major point at all. That's just maybe a beginning point. Uh, there's a whole lot of hostility. And uh, I know this because I'm a writer and I get letters. And so I'm going to read to you an actual letter that I got. Uh, word for word, this is for real. I, uh, as Dave Barry would say, I'm not making this up. Okay. Dearest teacher of the gospel, I read what you said about tithing and here are my comments. Adding to the gospel of Christ comes from the devil, and you know it. All the blessings I receive from our mighty God are free, received by faith, not by paying 10% to Satan. May God rebuke him. Yeah, like I was really saying you pay 10% to Satan. Okay, well, that's all right. Stop perverting the gospel of Christ. If you want to imitate Abraham who tithes, I will be glad to circumcise you myself. <laughs> just, you know, if you're considering about becoming a writer, you might not just want to rethink that one. <clears throat> just come on down. I will also expect you to imitate him in offering sacrifices, the ram and the blood. And do not forget your firstborn, you hypocrite. And then I love the next words. I do love you. <laughs> and this is good because just for a moment, I was starting to wonder. And I'm thinking, if he didn't love me, what would he have said? Okay. I do love you, and I pray that the demon, capitalized, which is interesting, that the demon would depart from your wicked teachings. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is near. And the letter is signed, Phil Comer. And, no, I was just kidding on that. It was, um, it was actually John Mark. That, but uh, Now, do you sense a little bit of defensiveness in there? Just, I mean, just maybe just a little. And do you think maybe part of it is because Deep down, we have to realize that surely, surely we should not be doing less than God required of his poorest people. Under the old covenant, when we are not only under the new covenant, but God has entrusted to us such wealth. I'm picking up this card, which actually reminds me to, you can stop by the, um, the book table and uh, it, Pick this up. I, I keep one of these in my wallet. It says, God owns it all. I'm his money manager. And then it's got verses of scripture. And then the other side, God cares what I do with the money he entrusts to me. I'd better ask him. Like, 
what to do with it since it all belongs to him. Then it's got verses of scripture, and it's really nice to have that by the credit card. It's really nice to have that by the cash in the wallet. And it really helps me. It goes, oh, yeah. That's right. I put those verses together. Yeah, that's good. You know. And this is what God says. Um, so my real thing in, in even talking about that issue of tithing is just simply to ask the question, has the grace of God, the lightning of his grace, really struck? Because if it had, you'd really think that the thunder of giving would be greater than what we see. So I want you to look at Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, and I'm going to focus on really a couple of verses here, verses 19 through 21, and here's, here's what it says. Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So he's talking about two different treasuries, one on earth, one in heaven. Then he goes on to talk about two different perspectives, the good eye and the bad eye. And then finally, two masters, God and money. And then goes from there to talk about why you shouldn't be anxious when you're giving as God calls you to give and investing your life in the right treasury and adopting the right perspective and serving the right master. Because seek first, it says in verse 33, the kingdom of God is righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Put God first, give as you should, do the other things as you should and watch God care for you and provide for you. Now, in chapter six, to give a context to don't store up for yourself treasures on earth, what has he said earlier about giving? He's talking about the subject of giving. And he starts by saying in chapter 6, when you give to the needy, don't sound a trumpet before you. Don't do your works of righteousness, including giving, but not limited to giving, in order to be seen by men. Don't do it to get your reward, to get your praise from people. Do it to please God and get your reward from God. Now, Jesus is not saying it's always wrong for anyone else to know about your giving or about your praying or about your Bible study or about your witnessing or about what God has done for you and how he's provided and, and his kindness to you. And it's not wrong for missionaries to tell you the stories of how God is using them. The point is always make sure that you don't make it about you, but you make it about God so that he gets the glory. How do we know that? Well, look at chapter 5, verse 14. This is the same sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. It's one sermon. You just go back a couple of minutes in the sermon to chapter 5, verse 14, and what does Jesus say? He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand where it shines its light to all in a house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify who? Glorify you? No. Glorify your Father in heaven. So, you let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Well, wait a minute. He goes then right on to say, don't do it so that others will praise you for it. In that sense, don't do it so they will see it. So there's a great balance here. On the one hand, make visible the church, the body of Christ, needs to be. Chil uh, parents need to be showing their children the way. They need to be showing their children. It's not showing off. It's showing, demonstrating how it's done. Older people in the body of Christ need to teach younger people how to pray, how to study the word, how to share their faith. 
Can somebody get up and share a testimony about parenting and marriage and evangelism and make it all about them and be seeking the praise of men rather than the praise of God? Of course they can. And they shouldn't do it if, if that's what they're doing. But can they also get up and honestly say, okay, look, humbly, this is what God has done in my life. And I'm telling you, he's shown his grace. And I've been sharing Christ with people, not as self-congratulation, but wow, I'm blown away. This is what God has taught me and shown me. And this is the joy that I'm experiencing. Same thing in all the spiritual disciplines, in prayer. I mean, I've read some great books on prayer. Maybe you have too. Are you glad that the people talk some about their prayer life? Because if they didn't, I wouldn't read it. I, I want to know. So if you read a book about giving, do you want to hear anything about what the person has actually learned and experienced in their own life about giving? Yeah. I need to learn. If it's about evangelism, I want to know. If it's a book about parenting, I want you to tell me what you've learned as a parent. Not so that you'll be glorified, but so God will be glorified. And I say all that to say, we have a huge gap in the body of Christ in terms of people training other people how to give. And those statistics reveal it. It's getting less and less and less giving with each generation. And I hold those of us who are older responsible for it. I wasn't taught much about giving. My generation has taught very little about giving to the next generation, and it keeps getting less and less and less. So I say in the church, the body of Christ, we need people to humbly share their stories. We need business people to, to, to be able to sit down with a group and say, hey, you know, let's have a group, get together. You could do this at Solid Rock. Have somebody who's learned something about giving say, I want to have a group of people get together, and we just want to talk, and let's share our stories and learn what God has been teaching us in the arena of giving, and then have some people share, you know what we do? We give 50% of our income to the Lord. We give whatever percent of our income to the Lord, and this is why we do it, and this is how we do it, and we've set a finish line in our lives. And I'm going to tell you right now, and if I'm doing this to get your praise, then I've lost my reward. I don't want to lose my reward. I'll just be real honest with you. It's God's praise. It's God's reward. It's God's commending. It's God's saying, well done, my good and faithful servant, that I care about. But I'm going to tell you this just so you know that I have experienced for the last 20 years plus this firsthand. My wife, Nancy, who was last night with me last night, but is not here today. We've experienced together giving 100% of the royalties from my book to God's kingdom. That's been something in the neighborhood of $5 million in the last number of years. And what we live on is, you know, a fairly average, actually a little bit below average, um, salary, and it's fine. We don't need any more. We do just fine. Nobody should feel sorry for us. We make the choice to not receive funds. At one time, we couldn't receive them. Now, we could receive them. We're making the choice not to. And there's a story behind that I tell in the treasure principle and money position eternity. Some of you know. We won't get into it. But the point is, what a joy to be able to choose to give 100% of the, those royalties to the Lord. And I just, I know there's people here who are giving significantly of your income. But if this is like most churches, and I suspect it is, there's a number who are giving significantly and generously, but the great majority of people, 96% of all Christians in America give less than 10%. 96%. And so I'm just going to assume the statistic is somewhat similar to that. It could even be higher than that in Solid Rock because of the very high proportion of young people. I would challenge young people to get together and say, let's be radical. Let's live for Jesus. Let's do what God says in his word for us to do. And let's learn what Jesus is saying. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth because things have mass and mass has gravity and gravity holds us in orbit around it. Don't be a servant to the money God. You cannot serve both God and money, Jesus goes on to say. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Why? 
because of moth and rust and dust. In other words, they're not going to last. In other words, Jesus doesn't say, don't store for yourselves treasures on earth because it's the wrong thing to do. He says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth because it's the stupid thing to do, right? They won't last. So he says, instead, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Why? Because moth and rust and dust aren't going to touch it. These aren't going to break in and steal. It's perfectly safe in the hands of God. So store up, take your material wealth, and give it generously to God's kingdom. And what you keep, and of course we'll keep some of it, but what you keep, then hold on to that loosely also and share it with other people and open your homes like the people are doing in, in the small group Bible studies and, and maybe for you, it, for them, or one of them anyway, put, giving on the, the meal every week, but that's gonna be a popular group. And uh, you know, but share that with other people and, and, and what God has given you. And this is something that that blesses him. Well, that's storing up treasure in heaven. Why does Jesus say to do that? Because it's the right thing? Well, sure, it's the right thing, but because it's the smart thing. Those treasures are going to last. You're going to experience them forever. And doesn't it seem strange that he's saying, store up for yourselves treasures? I mean, because normally we think, store up for yourselves. You should never think of yourself. You should never think of your own self-interest. Actually, Scripture repeatedly appeals to our own self-interest, which is fascinating, but not in what we normally think of as selfishness, not mercenary, but the father saying to his children, I want you to do this, and it's in your best interest. Whatever is to the glory of God is also to the good of his people. Do you believe that? It's, it's critical to believe that, or you're not going to get a lot of what the Bible says. Because doesn't he say, deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me? Doesn't he say you have to lose your life? Yeah. And then what, is, what does he say happens when you lose your life for my sake? You find it. Isn't that remarkable? He says, yeah, do this, do this. And you say, well, you should only do that. You shouldn't do it. We should never insist that God reward us for something. Well, of course we should never insist on it. A lot of people don't understand the doctrine of reward. And here's the key thing that maybe will help turn on the light for you. I hope it does because it's a critically important doctrine and it's woven throughout scripture, the doctrine of eternal reward. God promises a reward to his children. And there's still many Christians who just say, I can't because I get a lot of letters on this too, but I won't read them to you. But it's like, no, that's mercenary and that's, you know, that's not Protestant Reformation and that's not good theology because you're saying that God has to reward us. Oh no, it's not that God has to reward us. It's that God wants to reward us. God takes delight in rewarding us. And he wants to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. So when he says, store up treasure for yourselves in heaven, should we want to have treasures in heaven? Yes, we should. An analogy that maybe will help you is back when my girls were um, teenagers. Now they're 31 and 29 hard to believe, but back when they were teenagers, suppose they were living at home, suppose I came to them, I said, girls, on Saturday, we're going to have a family work day. We're going to work, and uh, at the end of the day, I'm going to give you both, uh, fill in the blank, $40, $50, whatever, and maybe more, and then I'm going to take you out to a really nice dinner. We're going to get washed up, and we're going to go out, take you to a nice dinner. Now, if I said that to my daughters, would it be wrong for them to look forward to being able to receive that money? And would it be wrong for them in particular to look forward to having this dinner out with dad? Of course it wouldn't be wrong for them. In fact, as their father, I would be disappointed if they weren't looking forward to it. And What's the key? The key is, whose idea was it? Theirs or mine? Now, suppose they would have come to me and said, okay, Dad, you say you want us to work on Saturday. Here's the deal. Unless you pay us 50, 60 bucks a piece, we're not going to do it. Unless you take us out to a nice dinner, forget it. 
We're not doing the work. Now that would be wrong. If that's what eternal rewards was, us demanding reward from God, who has saved us by grace, then that would be utterly wrong. But that's not what it is. Because it's not our idea. I never would have thought of it. God said, I'm going to reward you, I want to reward you, and I'm appealing to you on the basis of reward. So what Jesus is saying here is, don't store up treasures on earth, do store up treasures in yourself, in, uh, in heaven. And so he's saying, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. You'll have treasures waiting for you in heaven as a result of giving faithfully to him. So let me start to wrap it up here by taking that insert that you have, I'm trying to find mine, um, but that has the, uh, that one that had Ecclesiastes 5 on one side and uh, then has the treasure principle stuff on the other side. I know I have mine here. I'm just trying to find it. Here we go. You see the treasure principle? Treasure principle keys. God owns everything. I'm his, only, I'm his money manager. It all belongs to him. Second, my heart always goes where I put God's money. That's what Jesus is saying. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You want to have your heart be in missions? Give your money to missions. You want your heart to be in Solid Rock Church? Give money faithfully to Solid Rock Church. You want your heart to be with church planning in India? Give to church planning in India. You can determine where your heart goes by where you choose to put your treasure. Heaven, not earth, is my home. Talked about that last year when I came. I, I should live today not for the dot, but for the line. You know, the dot is where we live. It begins, it ends, it's short, but from it extends a line that goes on forever. So live for the line. Live now in light of eternity. Giving is the only antidote to, to materialism. It's the only way we can break the back of the money God is by giving, and then we break out of its orbit, and we recenter ourselves. It's like a Copernican revolution of giving centered now on the person of Christ and on the kingdom of God because our treasures are in heaven. God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 10 and 11, it says, God will make you rich in every way. And it's talking about financial riches. So that, so that what? Prosperity theology would say, so that you can live in only the nicest house and drive the nicest cars. No, what Paul says is, he will make you rich in every way so that you may be generous on every occasion. So that you may be generous that's why God entrusts to us more. So that we can do something with it, giving it to his glory. The FedEx guy comes by my house and I send off stuff to publishers and others and I receive things from him. Suppose I found out that for the last three months, the FedEx guy, every time he'd been picking up a package from me and been taking it, suppose I found out that he'd been taking it home and keeping it. Well, I would confront him. I would say, hey, what are you doing? You know, why, why are you keeping that stuff? And then suppose he looks at me and says, well, look, if you didn't want me to keep those packages, you shouldn't have given them to me in the first place. To which I would say, you're the FedEx guy for crying out loud. It's your job. You're supposed to not keep it you're supposed to get it into the hands of the people it's intended for. So people, let me ask you this question in light of scripture and in light of world need. What makes us think that just because God has put all of this wealth into our hands, that we're supposed to keep it? We're supposed to pass, yeah, keep enough. Of course we keep some of it, enough to meet our needs. It's like we set our own salary but then beyond that, we are to invest it where God wants it invested and we need to ask him. So think of yourself as God's delivery boy, God's delivery girl, not as an owner, but as a distributor, as a delivery person getting into people's hands. So let me close with this. 
Why are so many Christians today afraid to die? I think it's because we have laid up for ourselves treasures on earth. And what that means is that every day of our life, as we get closer to the day of our death, we're backing away from our treasures. There's more distance between us and them, and that's, that's a bad feeling when you're moving away from what you treasure most. Jesus says, turn it around. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Then every day of your life, instead of backing away from your treasures, which is, you know, not a good way, it doesn't feel good, now every day of your life as you get closer to the day of your death, you're moving toward your treasures because you've been laying up treasures in heaven. You see how that changes everything? He who spends his life backing away from his treasures has reason to despair. He who spends his life headed toward his treasures has reason to rejoice. Let's pray.